Push, do not lean forward into the microphone. Okay, um, could I have everyone wind up your social conversations um, so we can get started with Grand Rounds? Uh, one, of the, one of the advantages of um, Keith being away is I get to be the person who introduces Grand Rounds occasionally. And it's always a little bit embarrassing um, to uh, not really know that much about our own faculty. Um, Dr. Peter Wright has been here coming from Vanderbilt, uh, I think in 2007 or 8. What I didn't know about Peter uh, until I reviewed his CV to introduce him is that he actually went to St. Paul's um, in Concord uh, for high school. Maybe a dubious honor. <laughs> Maybe a dubious honor. I'm not going to make a joke about a very serious problem there, but um, he uh, also went to Dartmouth undergrad, and then many of you may not, how many of you know that Dartmouth, I think, is the second oldest medical school in the country? Yeah, it, um, until 1972, it was a, um, a two-year medical school uh, focusing on the, uh, the basic sciences years, and then after two years, you left uh, Dartmouth and you did your clinical years and other programs. And, Peter was a Dartmouth uh, two-year medical school graduate and then completed his medical school training um, at Harvard. So uh, I, I wondered why Peter came back here from uh, Vanderbilt after a, a highly successful career developing a world-class research um, effort in, in um, infectious disease there at Vanderbilt coming as uh, our, our benefit, obviously, to have Peter come here. Uh, also on our agenda is uh, Dr. David McClellan, who I did not, what? Jason. Jason. I looked like David here, but no, <laughs> you checked your CV, uh, who um, is a recent um, uh, NIH graduate from um, understanding, getting a PhD and then postdoctoral fellowship at the NIH looking at mechanisms of vaccine, uh, targeting vaccine efficacy or, um, uh, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. The subject today is on uh, RSV, I think past, present and future. And I, I, I'm believing that a lot of it is going to be about some breakthrough science that uh, will be a much needed uh, strategy of having a, a more uh, an immunization scheme that would actually prevent RSV in children. Since in my population, the neonate postgraduate premium neonate who's been on respiratory support, it remains one of the major causes of post um, neonatal intensive care mortality. And so, with that, I'll uh, bring Peter up. Thank you. Thanks. We'll have to address how to get back to the presentation from giving you the code, but I think this may do it. Um, so, I am going to talk about um, RSV, past, present, and future uh, with Jason and with Laura, and to acknowledge the contribution that a Dartmouth undergraduate, Patricia By, made to putting this um, presentation together. Um, so we have recently reviewed the epidemiology uh, here at Chad, um, and in fact, little has changed since the original descriptions by Brandt and Gleason in, uh, published in 1973. The epidemiology goes back a few years before that. Um, but basically the recognition, as you'll see from the Dartmouth data, that yearly epidemics of uh, respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, occur. And uh, what we found in looking back over it here was really to confirm many of the original descriptions, but I hope trying to draw some provocative conclusions from the data that aren't part of the general um, um, uh, sort of thinking about RSV. I'd also like to make a point, both in my presentation and Jason and Laura's presentation, um, you will hear 
a utilization of uh, clinical material is never quite the right word, but of, of looking at, um, at patients hospitalized here and trying to learn, uh, learn new and different things about them. So we're very appreciative uh, of a number of things, of Dean Jarvis helping to review the, the records um, and of the cooperation, particularly in the PICU, in identifying rapidly patients who were being admitted with RSV. You can see here the, the um, pattern of, um, I won't, it's perfectly obvious, there are winter epidemics of RSV uh, that occur. Uh, for some reason, uh, there seems to be a bit less in the last uh, two years, but I suspect that may also relate to another thing that's happened, and that is that uh, not, there's not an effort in, as part of a quality improvement to make a specific diagnosis of RSV. But this is based on hospital codes, and we should have captured uh, all the patients with, with bronchiolitis. Um, it's pretty invariable from, from year to year if you look at the longer trend. This is perhaps a slide that I'd like to spend just a little bit more time on. And this represents, um, I'm sorry. This represents the age of hospitalization of children over um, the last five years in, in aggregate. And what you appreciate is that RSV really occurs very, very early in life. And this is, is relevant to our thinking about vaccine strategies. In fact, the only period that might be spared uh, is the first two weeks in life. And I think you can argue that the incubation period of the disease is roughly five to seven days before hospitalization. So that eats up some of the first uh, two weeks, and certainly the uh, exposure of the very youngest child um, uh, to the outside environment, maybe except for older siblings, um, is not so common. So if maternal antibody is protective, uh, you wouldn't see it from, from this slide. The PICU admissions are shown in orange-red. Another uh, group that has the most severe disease probably in the first um, two months of life, up to seven to eight weeks, although the numbers are small and, and show some variability. If you aggregate the seasonality of it, you see, as you might have expected from the original individual years, uh, a curve of RSV hospitalization that peaks in February, but really January, February, and March, and when we, when we would expect um, to, to see it here. Uh, early cases may occur literally any time now, um, but um, this is the pattern of it. It's, it's a very striking seasonal pattern. Uh, so that's a, the first uh, point about what the epidemiology is telling us. Um, and uh, the question remains and intrigues one of where RSV hides during the summer. It's really extraordinarily unusual, even when you are uh, doing viral cultures year-round, as we did at Vanderbilt for many years, to find RSV in the summer months. There's no evidence that RSV epidemiology parallels influenza it doesn't undergo progressive antigenic change. You can look at isolates that are basically the laboratory strains isolated in the 1960s and find them very similar to current strains. We don't think it circles the globe as, as flu does of uh, appearing in the southern hemisphere during our summer and then coming back again. And its annual emergence is fairly synchronous across the United States. I've made the point that I think there's really minimal protection in the first months or even weeks of life from current levels of maternal antibody. This does not mean that if you could uh, generate higher levels of maternal antibody that it might not be um, protective. Um, 
and I commented already on this partial explanation for slightly lower rates even in the first several weeks of life. So I think we have the question of what represents, what is the role of maternal antibody? And to make it even broader, what is the role of serum antibody? Because in several other systems that I'm working in now, I find almost a complete dissociation between antibody that you can measure the mucosal surface in serum antibody. And yet with flu and other many other viruses, we talk about the level of serum antibody uh, that is key to protection. And I'm not sure that applies to RSV or indeed to flu or indeed to polio. So I'm going to go through a series of uh, things that to me are, are sort of controversial debates. Uh, one is how much viral titer uh, predicts the predicts increased uh, severity. And John DiVincenzo and others have argued quite convincingly uh, that there is a clear association. We've argued, I, I hope equally convincingly, that maybe there is uh, not. Um, and I'll show you some of that data. And it shows two things. Um, one is on the, on the right-hand side, or the left-hand side as you face it, a serum neutralizing antibody on enrollment, this is hospitalization with RSV bronchiolitis, had no effect on the severity of illness. And this is sort of, again, what is the role of serum antibody and so forth. It, it, the, the numbers are widely, the individual cases are widely scattered, the regression line and the um, correlation coefficients are extraordinarily low. Likewise, when you looked at RSV tighter on enrollment, you found very little correlation, very poor uh, and insignificant correlation between the amount of virus and the severity of illness, which is a score that's uh, on the vertical axis. So um, there may have to be a tiebreaker there, but. Uh, certainly, I'm, I'm very comfortable with our data, and at the same time, we, we did viral cultures on a number of children who were intubated, and the viral cultures in the lung and the viral cultures that we typically get from the nasopharynx had almost identical titers, so it's not a matter of a dissociation between what you're sampling in the nose and what's going on in the lung. They're very much the same. I'd like to now think about whether RSV bronchiolitis has any relationship to the pathophysiology of, of asthma. Uh, in, engaged in this is an issue of whether um, severe bronchiolitis in early childhood predisposes later on to asthma. And so I think in this regard, some uh, autopsy specimens from studies that uh, were done at Vanderbilt uh, are helpful, and they show the virus uh, replicating and show what you'll see in a subsequent slide is an exfoliation or def uh, loosening up and floating off of uh, virally infected cells in, a, in an autopsy specimen. And when you look at that same specimen, you see uh, immunoperoxidase staining RSV-infected cells, infected cells clogging uh, the bronchioles. And I think this is what's causing the illness in these patients. It's really uh, these plugs of infected exfoliated cells. Um, RSV grows in, and this is a green fluorescent protein tag, RSV grows in panel A in um, the typical laboratory strains rather uniformly but in a primary human adenoid epithelium, they're, they're more, uh, it's more selective in its growth. Um, and that is shown here in C in the epithelial cells themselves, and in D in an, an explant of human adenoids. And you can see, I think, that RSV in this case is infecting a ciliated cell. You see the little fimbri on the top. Um, and so I think that RSV itself is not resembling asthma. And in this respect, the recommendations of the American Academy of Pediatrics, which Sean 
Ralston has had a lot to do with putting together, indicating that one should not be using typical asthma therapy, bronchodilators, um, uh, racemic epinephrine, albuterol, and, or steroids in the treatment of bronchiolitis. So now there is an ongoing study to try to dissect this role of early RSV uh, infection with subsequent asthma that's entitled INSPIRE, and again is being led by a group at, um, at Vanderbilt. And to my mind, there still remains a chicken or egg argument. Uh, do they get severe bronchiolitis because of an underlying genetic or uh, predisposition of their um, pulmonary epithelium, uh, or, or indeed, is bronchiolitis in some way altering either the subsequent immunology or subsequent uh, lung structure in such a way that it predisposes to asthma? But this study, which is, is ongoing, I hope will uh, help to resolve that. So another controversial event, uh, debate is how RSV vaccine development should be directed, and this will begin to lead into the talks that Laura and Jason are going to give. I want to remind you of uh, an experience that I think people are sort of vaguely aware of, but every time I look back at it, I'm in the, the severity of the illness that was seen after inactivated RSV vaccine is, is reinforced. So an RSV vaccine called RSV LOT100, 100-fold um, concentrated, uh, was given to a number of young children in the late 1960s. It was a perfectly logical thing to do. We had um, similar approaches to the prevention of influenza, and people thought that it, that it would work and certainly never thought that it would do any harm. But you can see of uh, 31 patients who got RSV LOT100 in this paper, which is the best documented of them, uh, 20 were infected. That number is actually not terribly different than the 21 in the control group. But 16 were hospitalized uh, versus one. Um, and there were two deaths that were really directly attributed to the severity of their um, RSV disease. Um, so this vaccine failed, but it did more than fail. It, it, it is a, a ca very cautionary tale. There were three other reports involving about 810 recipients of RSV LOT100 that were published. And in each, the incident severity of, incidence and severity of respiratory syncytial virus disease was higher in vaccinees, particularly and maybe exclusively those for whom the inactivated vaccine was their first exposure to RSV. If they'd had natural RSV before and then got an activated vaccine, uh, they did not have uh, uh, illness. So I moved into this field, uh, thankfully shortly after this uh, episode, and uh, focused uh, on live viral vaccines, vaccines that could be given um, uh, intranasally and um, we particularly early on focused on uh, temperature-sensitive mutants with the idea, because they had a lower uh, shutoff temperature, that they might really be restricted in their growth to the upper respiratory tract, which is warmer, is cooler than the lower respiratory tract. And we showed, uh, and there are many, many papers on this, that viral vaccines and viral vaccines vectors can induce a broad and durable immunity. I think a paper that was important was a summary of much of the experience that we did that indicated that there was not enhanced disease if people on natural re-exposure in the subjects who had gotten live attenuated vaccines. But this is a very long and, and somewhat tortured story, uh, for me anyway. 42 years ago, um, I was an author on uh, a temperature-sensitive RSV vaccine in infants and children, which looked pretty good. 32 years later, I was an author on a paper and, and, and another approach to this um, subject. And, and in the past month, there has been a, um, a paper 
uh, outlining uh, again an approach to using a live attenuated vaccine uh, to expressing the RSV F protein and um, uh, hoping to have uh, mutations. This has discouraged people, discourages me. Um, so what, it, what is really going on now, and again, you'll hear more about this from Jason and Laura, if you could induce high levels of maternal antibody, and there's every reason to think you could, might the protection in early childhood um, be of longer duration? And that, that really is a, um, an ongoing thing, and I'll, I'll show a slide in a minute that you won't be able to read, but you'll get the idea that there's a lot of vaccine development going on, and a lot of it is directed towards this idea. Uh, it's been shown somewhat recently in flu that you can protect with maternal antibody, and so all of these are issues. Uh, but there's still a need. Uh, everybody recognizes that maternal antibody, if protection is afforded by it, wanes quite rapidly. And so giving an infant maybe at three or four months of age a vector-based, live-attenuated, or particle-based vaccine is another uh, part of the story for many companies. So this is a slide um, looking at um, almost every approach that is currently available for vaccinology to, um, uh, to RSV. So that's very encouraging, actually, that there are all these companies, some small companies, uh, others such as GSK, uh, very much, uh, you know, a larger company that's in putting effort into this. I won't spend much time in current RSV prophylaxis and treatment. Um, you're all aware of paluzivimab. You're aware that, in fact, the recommendations for its use are uh, have been constricted a bit. Um, Ribavirin is almost of historic interest this time at this point, and I don't think we'll come back. There is a new drug pipeline, which might not look very different than the slide that I presented, or which is one that uh, came from a company called, or organization called PATH, on uh, preventing, and I re recently wrote an editorial on one of these papers. So the promise for the future, I think, necessitates remembrance of the past, the formalin inactivated vaccine failure. Um, we need to have a an open mind and critical eye in evaluating vaccines and therapeutic approaches. In fact, we have many more vaccines in development than we have investigators who will be prepared uh, to evaluate them. So the bottleneck in this is not developing a new vaccine, but being selective and, and having investigators who will uh, undertake the trial. I believe that further research needs to be directed to the development of vaccines and therapeutic approaches, but we need to understand the neonatal immune response, pulmonary physiology, disease pathogenesis, and the induction of protective immunity. Um, that's all those questions, surprisingly, because a lot of very good people have been working on them are not answered. So I ended up on sort of a, uh, a cautionary note, showing a picture of the prophet Jeremiah, uh, lamenting and, and warning of uh, past misdeeds, and those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And with that uh, cheery note, I'll turn it over to Jason. <laughs> Okay. All right. Thank you, Peter, for that transition. All right. So Laura and I will be talking about um, a structure-based design, uh, structure-based approach to vaccine design, and how we can use um, monoclonal antibodies and their their isolation to sort of rationally design optimal immunogens for different vaccine populations. And so we'll have two parts. The first is some of the work I've done as a, as a postdoc on the structure-based vaccine design for RSV. And the second, uh, Laura will be talking about the human antibody response to the, the fusion glycoprotein of RSV. So part of this idea for structure-based design is nicely summarized here in this uh, paper by Dennis Burton, who is Laura's PhD advisor at the Scripps Research Institute. Uh, and so the idea is to really uh, go after particular types of antibodies and isolate them 
And so that's the, the first part, is find, find humans who have survived a uh, pathogen and we're neutralizing antibodies. <coughs> we're known to be important for the, for the protection and survival. And then isolate the neutralizing antibodies from humans through a number of methods, um, phage display, EBB transformation, and some things like PBMC sorting, which Laura will talk about, microneed assays. And basically come up with a panel of monoclonal antibodies that are known to be protective and important and then characterize their, in, their interactions with the, with the antigen. And so um, this involves a molecular characterization, a biophysical characterization using structural biology to understand where exactly the, the antibodies bind the antigen. And so here it's shown that the, the antibody is just binding a very um, a small portion of the total antigen. And from that information, we could begin to realize this is the, the only fragment of the antigen that you would need to re-enlist that type of antibody. And then you begin to do uh, various types of structure-based uh, design and create mutagens that when uh, used to immunize a human or uh, an animal model could elicit the exact type of antibody that you're, you're trying to um, elicit and that's protective. <clears throat> All right, so Peter talked a lot about RSV. And just to get a little bit to the, uh, the molecular details of RSV, it's a paramyxovirus. So that's a, a single-stranded negative sense RNA virus. Uh, similar to flu, the orthomyxoviruses like flu have segmented genomes. RSV has a uh, non-segmented RNA genome. Uh, it's, there's two subfamilies uh, within the, the paramyxoviridae. It's the pneumovirini and the paramyxovirini. And so RSV and uh, human metanumovirus, which is also an important pathogen in children, are both part of the pneumovirini subfamily. Uh, RSV is, is thought to initially come out of the cell as a filament. And so you have a matrix protein underneath that gives it a long filamentous shape. On the surface are two glycoproteins. There's the fusion glycoprotein, which is the F glycoprotein, and there's also the G glycoprotein. Uh, G is involved in attachment of the virus to host cell receptors, and F is required for the fusion of the viral membrane with the host cell membrane. Over time, the filaments and the matrix layer begin to break down, and you end up with more spherical particles uh, that tend to be more inactivated. Uh, the the F-glycoprotein is the target of most neutralizing antibodies. Um, and so palivizumab targets the F-glycoprotein. Most antibodies in human sera uh, that are neutralizing target the F-glycoprotein. And so it's, it's really the major antigen for, for most vaccines. And that's whether it's a subunit-based vaccine uh, live attenuated VLP, they almost all contain the F glycoprotein. Um, one of the first things we wanted to do is obtain a molecular view of the F glycoprotein in order to begin the structure based vaccine design. Uh, and so we did a lot of work trying to express and purify the F glycoprotein and determine its structure. The first structure we were able to determine is RSVF in the post fusion conformation. So it initially exists in the pre fusion state, which is metastable. And then during the fusion process, transitions into this uh, very stable post-fusion state. And so we, uh, we were able to uh, obtain a structure. And this was at the same time as a group from Novartis um, and Kurt Swanson et al. And we showed that a number of uh, neutralizing antibodies that people had been using, including pelivizumab, are able to bind to the post-fusion state, and then presumably also to the pre-fusion state, which is why they have the neutralizing activity. Uh, and then our collaborator, uh, Barney Graham at the NIH, and um, his scientist, Manchen, we wanted to see whether the post-fusion F protein would be immunogenic in mice. And so they, they immunized mice at zero in three weeks. Uh, so, so that's the post-fusion F, 20 micrograms plus 50 micrograms of uh, poly-IC adjuvant. Uh, for controls, they used the formula and activated RSV, similar to the RS lot 100 that Peter talked about that led to uh, enhanced illness. And then they also used uh, live RSV of A2 strain, five times 10 to the six PFUs uh, intranasally. Now what we can see is that, um, so at seven weeks, analyzing the sera, the, the FIRSV was a, essentially no neutralizing activity, live RSV, had some uh, neutralizing activities in sera, and post-fusion F was able to elicit a modest amount um, in EC50, about 100. And so the, the post-fusion F protein contains epitopes that are also present on the pre-fusion F protein. 
um, to which neutralizing antibodies can bind and be elicited by. Uh, and so on this graph, you can see that um, there's both a particle-based and subunit-based vaccine that are based on the post-fusion F protein. So Novavax is in phase two clinical trials. They basically have a post-fusion F aggregate, or rosette, which they call nanoparticle. And then uh, Novartis also have, works on the, the purified trimeric form um, that, that we and they crystallize. And so those are both progressing. Um, and are thought to be used potentially uh, for maternal immunization. Uh, at the time we had the, the post-fusion structure, we didn't have the pre-fusion structure of RSVF. Um, Ted Jaretsky's group, uh, in collaboration with Bob Lamb, did determine the structure of the parainfluenza virus 5 F-lipoprotein in the pre-fusion state. And so parainfluenza virus 5 is another paramyxovirus. Um, what we could see is that there is some regions that were essentially the same conformation. Um, it's going to be the top part uh, and the bottom part are basically the same proteins. Uh, a lot of the neutralizing epitopes, like the palatizumab epitope, will be present in both the pre- and post-fusion state. But there would be a, a large portion of the structure um, that's in a very different conformation from here to here. So it's suggesting that there should be antibodies that are specific for the pre-fusion state and that do not recognize the post-fusion state. Um, Jose Malero's group uh, showed that these <coughs> antibodies are actually found in, in humans. So they were able to take human sera, including Respigam, which was used clinically before palivizumab, and which had high titers and neutralizing antibodies. They immobilized the post-fusion form of the f protein on a column, passed over uh, Respigam and the sera, and showed that most of the neutralizing antibody passed through the post-fusion column. Suggesting that in humans, uh, we make a lot of antibodies specific for the pre-fusion state and that are unable to, uh, to react with the post-fusion state. And so that suggested that the, the pre-fusion form of the f protein would really be an ideal vaccine um, immunogen. Okay, so we and others um, then set out to isolate pre-fusion specific antibodies. We worked with a group in Xiamen University in China. Uh, they were able to isolate an antibody called 5C4 from mice. And there's two other antibodies, D25 and AM22, which is isolated by AIMS Therapeutics in the Netherlands from a female daycare worker using um, B-cell immortalization and micro-neutralization screening. And so on the left, you can see the, the neutralization potency of the different antibodies. More potent have the curves shifted to the left. Uh, Palibizumab is in gray. Modivizumab, which is a more potent derivative, uh, a <coughs> matured version of pelomizumab, is shown in black, so that's more potent. And you can see that the three pre-fusion specific antibodies in green, blue, and red uh, are extremely potent and up to 50 times more potent than, than pelomizumab. And if you're to look at binding to the, the post-fusion form uh, on ELISA, you can see that none of the, the pre-fusion specific antibodies uh, bind to the post-fusion, whereas Calibizumab and Motivizumab also bind hooks. So this was the, the first isolation and characterization of truly pre-fusion specific antibodies. The D25 antibody uh, has been affinity matured by about seven residues by Metamune. Um, it's now <coughs> called Medi8897 and is in phase two clinical trials. They've modified the FC region with YT mutation, so it now has a 90-day half-life. Uh, it looks really promising. This could potentially be a one immunization, uh, or one injection per season for passive prophylaxis, um, which could be a, a lot cheaper. Um, so, so that's actually pretty exciting from a, a passive prophylaxis standpoint. We then wanted to engineer in a, a pre-fusion form of the f glycoprotein. Uh, I've skipped a few steps. We were able to use D25 uh, to trap a pre-fusion conformation of F and determine its structure. And then from the structural information, we could rationally design in stabilizing mutations that would prevent the pre-fusion state from flipping into the post-fusion state. Um, we replaced the transmembrane domain with a trimerization motif from T4 bacteriophage to keep it trimeric. We engineered in disulfide bonds. We, found we identified a residue um, in the blue region, which is a region that moves between pre and post. We mutated that to cysteine. And we also mutated another residue to cysteine that's in the region in gray that doesn't move. So that really formed a covalent bond to lock the F-protein, as well as some cavity filling mutations. Uh, and then you can see on the negative staining M, we had a very homogeneous field of pre-fusion particles that would not 
flip to the post-fusion state. Uh, so then Barney and other investigators at the Vaccine Research Center immunized both mice and rhesus macaques. And so th these are the data uh, from rhesus macaques. You can see that post-fusion F, uh, we immunized a post-fusion F protein called DS, which contained just the disulfide bond, and as well as ds one which contained the full stabilizing set of mutations. And you can see at weeks 6, 8, and 10, the post-fusion form generally had EC50s in the low hundreds, uh, between 100 and 173, whereas the pre-fusion form had EC50s uh, between 1,000 and 7,000, which are the, the highest titers Barney had ever um, observed before from an immunogen. So it was really exciting that the, the pre-fusion confirmation elicits much higher titers than the post-fusion state. Um, and so we're pretty optimistic for potentially maternal immunization. Since post-fusion is already looking quite good for Novavax and Novartis, um, we think pre-fusion will be even better, which could um, elicit higher titers, higher titers in the pregnant women, which could allow you to immunize earlier or protect the infant for a longer duration after birth. Um, and so we have um, our pre-fusion F protein. There's a lot of IP on it. It's been licensed by three pharmaceutical companies, and it's now in preclinical development. Uh, importantly, this work really provided proof of principle for structure-based vaccine design. So it's something that a lot of people have been working on, especially my postdoc advisor, Peter Kwong, in the HIV field, trying to do structure-based vaccine design. But here we actually have something that looks like it's, it's working. Um, and it was a uh, top 10 breakthrough of the year uh, in science in 2013. And so we think uh, this approach can also be applied to, to other viruses and other pathogens. We're able to take a molecular view of the proteins, stabilize them in the exact conformations that we want, and then use them as immunogens to elicit the desired immune response. <clears throat> and so with that, we were just looking at a couple of antibodies um, that were isolated from adults. And so what we wanted those what types of antibodies, if you, if you could isolate many hundreds of antibodies from adults um, to represent maternal immunization uh, from, from infants and from elderly, so different vaccine populations, how do the antibodies against the RSVF protein look like? Uh, do they target many different epitopes? Uh, is there a pre-fusion or post-fusion bias? Uh, can infants even make neutralizing antibodies like the pre-fusion-specific ones? And so we set out uh, in collaboration with Laura Walker at Adamab. Uh, to really begin isolation and characterization of hundreds of monoclonal antibodies, which is really unique to, to Adamab's platform and Laura's experience as um, to sort PBMCs using probes to isolate these antibodies. And so Laura will now take over. All right. So as Jason said, when we started off on this, we were interested in basically profiling antibody response to RSV in different um, uh, populations that would be vaccinated. So we had a number of different questions that were of interest that we thought um, would be relevant for vaccine design when we started off on this project. And we think, as you'll see at the end, we've answered many of these questions at, at this point, I think. Um, so one of the questions we were interested in um, was the epitopes that are targeted during natural infections. So um, what are the epitopes that are associated with neutralization? As Jason mentioned, people had done some of this mapping with serum, but not as much with monoclonal antibodies, at least not with large numbers from many different people. Um, are all of the antibodies that bind pre-F actually neutralizing? This was hypothesized, but I don't think it's been conclusively shown. Um, how many different antibodies um, are induced during natural infection? So is it um, just sort of, is there one immunodominant epitope, or is there um, many different types of antibodies? Um, and then looking at responses in these different populations, so what do the responses look like in infants compared to adults, compared to um, elderly? Um, today we're not going to talk about um, the elderly study. We haven't uh, started on that. Um, and then lastly, sort of are there any sequence features um, associated with um, recognition of certain epitopes, um, which has been observed, for example, for HIV antibodies or for influenza antibodies. Um, we're also interested in the nature of non-neutralizing antibodies. So these are um, types of antibodies you would not want to elicit um, by a vaccine. So um, are there immunodominant non-neutralizing epitopes, and, and how do these vary um, between these different vaccine populations? <laughs> Um, how many lineages are induced by natural infection? This would be more relevant probably to elderly samples. So it's been observed for influenza, for example, after vaccination in elderly. Um, you see massive expansion of relatively small number of lineages, which may be a good or bad thing, depending on what those antibodies are. And then finally, as, as Peter alluded to, um, what about enhancement of infection? There was some data um, a number of years ago 
suggesting that potentially antibodies were associated with um, enhancement of infection after the formal inactivated vaccine. And so looking at these large number of antibodies, could we see this at least in vitro in neutralization assays? And if so, what, what would be the mechanism? So this was our um, strategy for profiling um, RSVF-specific antibody uh, repertoires. So you can see there's um, four different um, sort of institutes involved in this. So we've been obtaining PBMC samples from, from DHMC, um, so from healthy donors, basically our friends, and then from infected infants, which we've been able to get from Peter. Um, so from there, um, we've been doing some sorting by flow cytometry at Atomab, and so we do single cell sorting to isolate RSV-specific B cells. From there, um, we, we clone the antibody, sequence them, um, do binding assays and, and sort of coarse epitope binning to try to understand on a very coarse level where these antibodies are binding. Um, then the antibodies um, are also shipped to, to Jason's lab or, or walked over to Jason's lab at Dartmouth, um, where they're doing structural studies and finer epitope mapping. And then as well, um, as with Barney Graham at NIH, who's setting up um, neutralization assays. And as Jason mentioned, um, the goal would be, presumably, if we could identify antibodies um, that are very potently neutralizing, you could use structures of those antibodies to further stabilize key antigenic sites and optimize immunogenicity or block non-neutralizing sites, for example. Wrong direction. Um, so this is um, basically how we're doing high-throughput cloning um, at Adama. This is essentially our workflow. So we start with a human PBMC sample. So this could be from, from adults or infants. Um, from there, we incubate the PBMCs with a fluorescently labeled antigen. Um, in this case, this is the RSVF protein um, that's fluorescently labeled with a fluorophore. So the F protein is going to bind to the B cell receptor expressed on memory B cells. So those cells are going to fluoresce. And then by flow cytometry, we can see those antibodies. Those would be these little dots out here. And those um, we can sort as single cells. So single cells are deposited into wells and 96 well plates um, and lysed. And from there, we do single cell PCR. So essentially, um, we're amplifying the B cell receptor from single cells. Um, so this is a natively paired heavy chain and light chain now um, in each well or most wells. So from there, we transform yeast with those heavy chains and light chains. And that's, that's shown here. And so this is sort of where Adamab's technology comes into play. Um, so we're not exactly a B-cell cloning company. Um, we have synthetic libraries, but um, our yeast um, are highly engineered to, to express uh, human antibodies both on the surface or they can switch to produce soluble IgG. So it's also very useful um, for doing B-cell cloning. So from there, those yeasts are transformed. So now in each well, you have um, yeasts that are expressing a single antibody. So we induce the yeast and they secrete IgGs, and then we purify those, those IgGs and characterize them. So this is just the timeline. So it takes about two weeks to clone anywhere between about 100 to 300 IgGs. So this is just showing you what those sorts look like. So this is an example of a healthy adult. Um, and we have, we've done this now with three healthy adults. They all look relatively similar. Um, and so to walk you through sort of the gating scheme um, by flow cytometry, and for those of you that aren't as familiar with flow cytometry, basically this is just a technology that allows you to analyze as well as sort cells that are labeled with, um, with certain fluorophores. For example, you can just label B cells with CD19 that has a fluorophore attached, and then you can see those B cells. Um, so essentially what we're doing is we're just gating on total lymphocytes, and you can just do that with forward scatter and side scatter, so based on their size and granularity. From there, we gate on B cells, and, and that's using CD19 and CD20 that's labeled with a certain marker. So here are your B cells. And from there, we, we say, so of these B cells, how many of those express IgG and IgA? So how many are class switched? And that's shown here. So in healthy adults, that's usually about 25%. So here's your IgGs. Here are your IgAs. And then finally, we get on these and we say, of all of these IgGs and IgAs, how many of them bind to RSVF? And so that's shown here in this quadrant too. So in this case, 0.18% of memory B cells, and we're calling anything that's class switched memory, um, are RSV specific. And this is relatively typical of uh, healthy adults. You can see we're labeling um, sort of a detail. We're labeling the RSV protein with two different fluorophores, APC and PE, and sorting on the diagonal. And that helps you get around any background. For example, this cell here is just kind of sticking to APC. If it's binding specifically to F, it should be binding equally well to both. So what we do is we sort all of the cells in quadrant two. So here we're sorting 100 to 300 cells, and those go on to, to, for PCR. 
So now this is looking at um, an infant, and I think this is the 10-month-year-old infant. So this infant was infected at six months, and then we had the blood draw at um, 10 months. Um, and we've looked at two that are in this age range. They both look relatively similar as well. So we're doing the same thing. But what you can see is that there's about, there's about 10 times more cells now in this gate. So 1.8% of class switched B cells are RSV-specific. And that's because this is a recent infection compared to adults, um, which probably have not been recently infected. They may have been infected a, a few years ago, for example. So we're doing the same thing. And then finally, this is looking at an infant that's, that's younger than six months. So I believe this one was a two-month-year-old um, kid. And so you can see now there are many much fewer, um, many fewer cells in this gate, so now there's only 0.09%. And because there are so few um, class switch cells, we couldn't even gate on IgG and IgA, so we're just gating on total B cells. So you can see things get a bit stickier where now you're getting cells sticking to PE and sticking to APC, which is why that double label is very important. Um, so anyway, we sorted these, um, and that's all followed by single cell PCR, the transformation, and then IgG sequencing and production and characterization. So the first thing we do is um, we look at the sequences. So for those of you that aren't used to looking at these psychedelic-looking plots, this is how this is represented in the field in general. Um, so this is a lineage analysis. Um, so the size of each slice is proportional to the number of clones in the lineage. And when we talk about lineages, we're talking about clones that are related by somatic mutation, um, also known as clonotypes. So those clones are derived from the same B cell. Um, so they only differ um, by somatic mutation. And then the total number of clones we're looking at is in the center. So for example, for this adult, we cloned 108 antibodies. Um, probably 100 out of 108 of those were unique sequences. And then for example, this blue slice here is probably about 10 clones that are all related. So you can see that the repertoires are very diverse, um, particularly um, in the infants and especially compared to other infections. So if you compare this, for example, to HIV, this is data published by Michelle Lusenswag. You also see this with influenza, where for example, two antibody um, lineages or three lineages are essentially dominating the entire response. Um, so next we looked at somatic hypermutation. So for those of you that don't think a lot about um, B-cell immunology, somatic mutation is just part of the process of affinity maturation where point mutations are introduced into the variable regions of B-cells, um, of antibodies in the B-cell receptor. Uh, mutations that increase affinity are selected for, so those B-cells survive, proliferate, get more mutations become memory cells or long-lived plasma cells. Mutations that decrease affinity um, do the opposite. Those antibodies don't get survival signals, and they die off. So this is looking at um, somatic mutations, so the number of nucleotide substitutions in the VH or the VL. So for example, if you look at influenza antibodies after vaccination, you see that they're highly mutated because you're being exposed to that virus over and over and over again and accumulating more and more mutation. So as you would expect in the adult donors, so these are the three adults down here, you can see there are relatively high levels of mutation. These are actually comparable levels um, to what you see with influenza, um, much lower than what you see with HIV, um, compared to the two um, infants that are older than six months and two very young infants. And so you can see the level of somatic mutation correlates with the age, which is probably what you'd expect. Um, note that these are all presumably primary infections, especially for the youngest infants. Um, so then we did um, binding analysis to look at the affinity of those antibodies and to compare with the age groups. Um, so on the y-axis, you're looking at affinity, um, and so increased affinity is going up. Um, so you can see the adult antibodies are definitely higher affinity on average than the, the infant antibodies or the, the very young infant antibodies. Um, and that said, um, even within this group of very young infants, there are some antibodies that are quite high affinity. Um, so Jason talked a little bit about this, um, and there has been some serum mapping data to also suggest this. Um, but we found that all of the repertoires for all of these different donors um, contained a relatively large fraction of antibodies that were specific for the prefusion confirmation. So that's shown in blue as these prefusion-specific antibodies. Um, so even in these very young infants, you have a relatively large proportion of them. And so this is, um, I think, good news because, as, as Jason said, these antibodies should be associated with neutralizing activity. So now this is looking sort of deeper into the epitope mapping. So basically what we did was a lot of different competition assays. So if you're not familiar with this type of assay, essentially all you're doing is looking at binding of an antibody to the F protein and getting that number, the single on flow cytometry, and then blocking the F protein with a particular antibody that you know where it binds. 
and then looking at the signal. So if the antibody no longer binds in the presence of, of the control antibody, you know that it's binding to an overlapping epitope. Um, so what we found is that um, a large proportion of the adult, so if you look here at the three adults, um, it's actually strikingly similar. You don't have to look at all of these different categories. If you just look at the colors, you can see that they have relatively the same number of antibodies in each of these different bins, which is surprising, well, was surprising to me, because these are three completely different individuals um, with, with different exposures, probably. Um, so the warm colors, so the reds and the pinks and the oranges, are epitopes that are associated with neutralizing activity. And the cold colors, the blues and the grays, are, are epitopes that are associated or are not associated with neutralization. So you can see um, that in the adults, a relatively large proportion of the antibodies bind to epitopes that, that we know are associated with neutralization. So when you compare that to the infants, um, you can see that there are antibodies against the same, same sites. So you can see sort of the same colors here, but, but the response, at least in three out of four infants, is skewed. You can see this, this blue color here. So it seems like in many of these infants, um, there seems to be a relatively dominant epitope, which we're defining by this 13390 antibody, um, which we know where this binds now. And these antibodies are non-neutralizing. And for some reason, they seem to pop up more in infants um, than in adults. So now this is looking at the neutralization. This was all done in Barney Graham's lab. So again, we're comparing the adults um, with the, the, the infants and then the very young infants. So what you can see, um, this is all colored um, by potency. So the highly potent antibodies are in red. So the medium potency in orange, the low potency in yellow, and then the non-neutralizing antibodies are in gray. So you can see in the adults, a very large fraction of the repertoire is neutralizing. So 80 to 70 to 80%. And many of those antibodies, 20 to 30%, are very, very potent. So comparable to the antibody Jason described, D25. It's the most potent known antibody. When you compare that to the infants, um, there are still still neutralizing antibodies. Um, you can see those colored here, um, but there's definitely a lower fraction compared to the adult antibodies. And so that's probably associated with both the targeted epitopes. So if you remember this slide here, um, there, are, there are fewer antibodies um, that are binding to epitopes associated with neutralization, as well as the slide I showed at the beginning um, showing that the infant antibodies are just lower affinity. And so we do see that there's a correlation between binding to the prefusion form of F and neutralization, and that's shown here. So this is IC50, um, so the potency is, is, so the most potent antibodies would be down here, um, and the, the highest affinity um, down here as well. So you can see there are some exceptions, but in general, the higher affinity to pre-F you are, the better you are at neutralization. And so it makes sense to think that, that infant, infant antibodies would be lower potency. Um, so now, what are the epitopes that are associated with the most potent um, neutralizing activity? So we've broken this up now into ultra-potent antibodies. So these, these would be IC50s less than 0.02 micrograms per mil, highly potent, medium, low, and, and basically non-neutralizing. Um, so what you can see, looking at these two categories here of basically the most potent antibodies, it's essentially three to four, more likely three, dominant antigenic sites. And so those are shown here. Um, Morgan and Jason's lab made this um, nice structure for us. Um, so the, the three sites are, are colored. So the D25 site, which, which Jason talked about, is at the very top here, um, colored in orange. Um, the MP8 site, which is colored in red. And then an epitope that's in between those sites that has not been previously described. Um, but we definitely see that this is um, a relatively large fraction of the very potent antibodies um, that are antibodies targeting a site in between that of D25, MP8. And then this is the palivizumab site. And Laura, this is all just the pre-fusion F? protein epitopes on that? Yeah, so the most potent antibodies um, are all specific for pre-F. That's a good point, yes. Um, so just zooming in here on these very, very young infants. So these are, these are both of these infants are about one month of age. So you can see there are a small fraction of antibodies that are highly potent. So if you can induce these specificities um, at, at high levels, um, that would be promising for infant vaccine design. So where are these antibodies binding? And what we found is that most of these antibodies, particularly in this 2026 infant, um, are binding to the MP8 site, which is colored in red. And some of them bind to this um, green site here. So the interesting thing about the antibodies targeting the MP8 site is that many of them lack somatic mutation. So it's known that infants in general, if you're younger than six months, somatic mutation isn't really happening at any appreciable level at that point. And so you would definitely want to induce antibodies that can neutralize in the absence um, of somatic mutation or just with very low levels. Um, and it seems that these antibodies um, that can do that, which is good news um, for a vaccine if you could induce them. 
Um, so this is just our summary. So it seems that the pre-fusion confirmation of RSVF um, elicits higher neutralizing titers than the post-fusion confirmation. Um, we found with, with our work here that I just showed that the most potent antibodies seem to target about three different um, epitopes, and all of them um, are exclusively expressed on the pre-fusion form of the F protein. And infants, even very, very young infants, can elicit potent neutralizing antibodies with little to no somatic mutation, and most of these are directed against the MP8 site. Um, and I didn't talk about this, but many of them have the same heavy and light chain germline pair, um, which is also of interest, and Jason's doing work now to try to understand um, the structural basis of that. Um, so what you're doing now, uh, Morgan and Jason's lab was here, um, is working to structurally characterize some of these um, unknown, previously undefined epitopes to understand the basis of the preferential pairing that we're seeing in these potent infant antibodies. And then finally, um, the goal would be to design vaccine antigens um, for infants that can specifically target this epitope, which goes back to the slide Jason was showing at the beginning about rational vaccine design. So I think that's it. Oh, wait, acknowledgments. Um, so let's see, McClellan Lab, we've got Morgan right here, um, and, and Emily Shipman um, from Adamab, Dane and Tillman is the CSO and the, and the CEO and, and some of the technicians. Um, Barney, of course, who does all of the neutralization assays, Man and Joan are in his lab. Um, Dart Lab, so Alan and the Dart Lab um, is, is isolating a, a lot of PBMCs for us from these infants and exposed donors. And then Patricia, who's with Peter, who's here, here as well. Thank you. I, I love this type of grand rounds. I think we need more of them, the science and then the translation into clinical uh, relevance. So I'm sure there are questions. Um, do we have, some, this may be a very basic question, do we have some sense of what that protein does? And why it would be the one that could make these such potent, or yeah. what epitopes on it could make such potent? Yeah, we cut out all those slides. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, you can it, It's the protein that is involved in fusion of the viral membrane with the host cell membrane. Okay. So it so undergoes the large conformational change in order to, to fuse the membranes at the cell surface and allows a viral RNA into the cell. So if you, sh if you block that conformational change, the virus doesn't get in. I think there's still a number of questions about where the pre-fusion pre F exists in the virus replication cycle and where antibody recognition takes place. Right, so if you rev up all of these antibodies in infants against the pre-fusion F, they have to be able to get at it and kill the virus beforehand. That's presumably <coughs> the whole goal. That's the whole goal. Right. Um, and wh why are they making so many non-utilizing antibodies? Is that the only valid question? Uh, no, probably a lot of it's too. So some of them are non-neutralizing because they aren't. Uh, they don't have enough affinity yet. Okay. Okay. So in, in general, as Laura showed, there is a correlation between affinity and neutralization. So the, the tighter you're able to bind to something, the better you're able to neutralize it. Otherwise, you fall off, and then you're not bound. So the lack of uh, hypermutation leads to less affinity, leads to a bunch of antibodies. Exactly. Yeah, and that's why just in general, the adults will have had higher somatic hypermutation levels, higher affinity. What we're excited about is that we've at least identified one class of antibodies that with no somatic hypermutation bind very well and neutralize with very high potency. Yeah, so that so that suggests that you know infants are capable of being immunized and making a potent response. Because one question is like, how early would you have to immunize? Um, if you can't make, if infants can't make antibodies that are sufficiently neutralizing at six months of age, then there's no point in immunizing. But it looks like they can. There's at least a heavy germline pair without any semantic hypermutations that neutralizes. So. Even in the two-month-old? Even in the two-month-old, yeah. So that was, we need a few more this winter. Yeah, we'd like to get a few more of our papers. Can I ask a, a question that I think is practical, which is it sounds like the first thing down the pipeline of practical use is a more potent specific antibody in passive immunity uh, with the 90 day efficacy uh, once during the season instead of every month infusion. What's the timeline? when we might expect that that is available country here. Uh, we don't have a good sense of all the regulatory hurdles for how long they could do it. Um, there's two that are development. So there's Medi-887 by Medimune, which is looking to replace Synergis. And then there's a Regeneron antibody, REGN2222, which is in phase three clinical trials. 
So you really need to see good efficacious phase three clinical data. Um, and so you don't want to sort of jump the gun there. Because motivizumab, which was a more potent version of, of halibizumab, looked really promising up in phase three, when uh, despite a much greater neutralization potency and affinity, didn't do very much. Um, and there were side effects, right? And yeah, and, and there was some side effects as well. So we really need to see the, the phase three, but uh, I would think it's on the order of several years. But maybe a vaccine is still a decade or more. Okay. I think we probably have to stop because we're over nine o'clock. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Thank you.